0: Today's interview is brought to you by Public. You'll be hearing more about them later on, but for now, let's get into today's interview. We've got a very special episode today. We've got George Goncalves, head of U.S. macro strategy at MUFG, and of course, Daniel DiMartino Booth, author at QI Research. Great to have both of you here. Welcome.
1: Thank you for having us.
0: ravi. We are here in early January. I want to have how both of you are thinking about the economy, the Federal Reserve, where interest rates are going to be, as well as the, the Federal Reserve's balance sheet. Danielle, how about we start with you? What's your broad outlook for 2024? What, what do you think, you know, when it's December you know, 31st of this year, how is this year going to be remembered? What's your outlook?
1: I think this is going to be the year that, that direct fiscal stimulus finally ends, which sounds kind of crazy, given how far removed we are from from the pandemic hitting. I mean, if you want, you want to think about February, 2020. So we're just about four years out. And yet this I think is going to be the distinguishing feature for 2024 is that into an election and a contentious election at that, we're going to see continued deficit spending, but the cessation, the arresting of directly deposited funds to us households and how that's going to manifest which we're seeing play out, right? We're seeing income expectations, spending expectations at the lowest in three years, inflation expectations are falling, wage disinflations setting in the vast majority of the jobs being created are in the lowest income paying segments. And American households, they're kind of starting to get the message. And that's a real genuine regime shift from how most U.S. households have approached supporting the 70% of U.S. GDP that is consumption. And I think that that's what we're going to look back on that year as the year year that the U.S. household finally stumbled.
2: I mean, in general agreement there, I do think this is like a bumpy landing that last year really was the soft landing. We're going to end up finding out that, you know, soft landings are transition periods. It's not something, it's not a steady state for the economy. And so, you know, to have a sustainable economic environment with rates this high, I think we're gonna, you know, we're gonna throw out that hashtag H4L higher for longer is not gonna be with us any longer. And my view has always been that the US cannot afford high rates, both at the government level, at the corporate level, and and of course the consumer. We've had a very interesting business cycle coming post-pandemic, and then with all this kind of fiscal support that that, that Danielle was referring to. And you know, that's all behind us. And so on a go forward basis, you have like, you know, really think about it, the four economic agents of the economy. You have like the Fed super critical, fiscal side, obviously critical. You have the banking system, and then you have the private enterprise slash consumer. And it's been the consumer, you know, the relatively resilient labor markets, a lot of savings, a lot of cash on the sidelines. And, and we've had a lot of private lending, which has kind of taken the place of the bank side, but banks aren't really lending. The Fed is still restrictive. They haven't cut yet. I mean, the market is acting as if they cut it or cut already, but we haven't seen the cuts actually come to fruition. QT is still in place. And fiscal, to, to Danielle's point, is basically behind us. So, like, where is the growth going to come from to sustain the sort of activity that we had in 2023? So that was the soft landing. Now we're into the bumpy landing. And the question is, can the Fed really try to catch that, you know, the, the fall of the economy?
0: So this, the soft landing, Daniel, you're, you're, you're uh, not shaking your head, but you're nodding back and forth. So George, you're saying the soft landing already occurred last year, and that's because uh, inflation fell sharply, but growth uh, held in there. So real growth actually, you know, shot up.
1: That's exactly right, and actually, towards the tail end of disinflation being as as powerful as it was, you started to see real income growth, and that's something that had also been absent during a, during the period of of rising in inflation. But again, that is that's largely behind us. We 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 did a deep dive into non farm payroll job creation in the twelve months end at December. And, you know, 81% of those jobs were in leisure and hospitality, government jobs, social assistance, healthcare, things that are supporting the growth of the welfare state in the United States. I mean, some, some of the some of the state by state metrics are just remarkable that you've seen the state of New York, for example, Jack, where you are, that 120 percent of the growth has been in government, social assistance and and health care, as highlighted by the Wall Street Journal editorial board. We saw that it, it was it came to our attention through the QI research uh, chat room, and we went and looked at the data ourselves. It was actually worse. So through December, you've had negative negative one percent of what we would consider to be strong income white collar job production. Meaning, you know, to, to Mike Green's uh, theory, we might see negative flows into four hundred and one ks in twenty twenty four. That brings us to a whole different technical backdrop.
0: And George, why do you think it was that spending and income in 2023 was so resilient and, and why you know its growth rates fell so much less than than inflation? So that's why real growth was was so high. I mean, a lot of people are throwing out rate theories about how the debt, the leverage was uh, very long term you know people having 30 year mortgages so they they're not feeling the pain you know apple what you know amazon they issued 30 year 40 year bonds they're not feeling the pain of 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 rising rate hikes do you sort of do you, do you agree with that and do you think that at at what, at what point will the the restrictive level of interest rates put a a damper on the economy
2: i just want to go back to one point that Danielle made just so i think it's it's a really good one um around the whole 401k contribution and low income jobs because that's super critical and that also goes back to like overall spending power if you're creating jobs that are low pay that are still you know dealing with higher price levels. so the price of you know inflation has been going up slower but you know the overall price that we're all paying is still higher than two or three years ago and people's wages have not completely kept up with that even though on a real basis it looks better in the last six months. so like if we are producing low quality jobs and they're not really contributing to their 401ks, that's that, that, that kind of momentum that, that Danielle is referring to, which I think is critical, critical for, for risk assets. You know, look, the rate channel, those, there's there's like have and have nots all throughout this past year. We, we saw it then, which is one of the reasons why the Fed had to kind of come in and support the, the banking system, especially on the regional banking side. But there's those that have access to liquidity, those that have, were making money off of their cash balances as rates went higher, and you know, a lot of large, lot of large corporates have large cash balances, so in many ways they didn't really feel the pinch of higher rates. Uh, but that's all behind us, though, right? So, like, the idea is now, like, if they don't cut rates, and and now we're in the second year where the maturity walls do matter for corporates. It matters for small to mid-sized uh, lending for SMEs for the smaller companies. I, I think that now is where you're going to start to feel the pinch on rates. Going in the opposite direction. So those that were cash long last year and made a lot of money on, on just cash balances. That that's one cohort, yes, those that have locked in mortgage rates at low rates. But it's the economy is based on a relative growth change. So if, if no one moves and there's no turnover in housing, that's not good either, right? So I think we're now really gonna feel the, the effects of the higher rates. It's the whole long and variable lags. This one's much longer. Given the setup was
0: different post COVID. And George, uh, what's your outlook on rates right now? The Fed funds rate is at you know, the, the upper range, of uh, five point five percent, or as you say, you know, five and five and four four eighths, five and a half, because you're you know, old school bond guy. The market is now pricing, and I think around six six cuts or five five or six cuts. How many times do you think the Federal Reserve will cut this year, and when do you think they will start cutting, and why?
2: Listen, we've, we've been a little bit out of consensus where maybe early you can say and, and early being wrong, but our view was that the July hike was the last hike and that now is basically foregone conclusion. And in the, in the midst of last year's last hike, our view was that, that that's the last hike. Roughly, you know, next year, sometime next year, they're going to start cutting because we can't afford higher for longer. So we've had a March cut in place really since the summer of 2023 of 25 basis points, but it could be 50 depending on what's going on with the banking system. And, and it was literally you know, predicated on the idea that you know, we're getting into this you know, non-linear phase where the economy does decelerate faster, that the labor markets, a lot of the things that Danielle's been pointing to, will also pick up and get worse from here. And then we go from labor hoarding to actually layoffs. And then the Fed has to move faster. I mean, something got to <laughs> Chair Powell in, in December. And I know Danielle has lots of views on that, but it's, 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 it's probably macro, it's a little bit financial. And it's not just like, hey, stocks are high, so financial conditions are easing. The financial conditions that matter the most for the Fed is the banking system and the credit market. And they, didn't, they were not looking that great in late Q3 and early Q4. This whole pivot and this big, massive rally we've had in, in risk has kind of eased some of that pressure. But the, you know, the Fed is worried about something, and it's both macro and financial in my view. And so let me give you the answers on terms of cuts. So starting in March 25. Every single meeting until the end of the year, that's 175 bips of cuts, gets you down to three and five eighths, 3.63, somewhere between 350 and 375. But that's like, that's now my base case, and the market pretty much has priced that in. So now me and the markets are on the same page almost. I think the rest of the street is is eventually going to get there. And the real question comes down to, which is, is the first cut 25 or 50? And when do they start? Is it March or May or June, right? And what do they do about QT? So I think those are all the you know the super big topics which I know Danielle and I love to go into. But I teed up a few things. I going to turn it
0: back to you. Yeah, I mean, if the first cut was a fifty, that would, that would definitely be a bombshell. So Danielle, I think you and George have a, you know, a large amount of agreement about the overall economy. But uh, do you agree with with George about the, the rate cuts that the Fed will start cutting in March probably and do twenty five from there, so it will you know, get all the way down to uh, three fifty or three three seventy five.
1: Uh, I, I think the the probability is certainly there. We had a very low survey response rate for the non farm payroll survey in in the month of December, so I suspect that we'll see yet another downward revision. Uh, when we get the January data reported for the month of December, the, the slowdown is going to be at some point too difficult to ignore. WARN notices is something that QI research started following very closely in 2023. The buildup of pent-up jobless claims is sitting there staring at us. The lack of decline in continuing jobless claims is highly problematic at this point. We probably ended the year at about $2 million on on the continuing claims side. And by the way, a, a, a nationwide phenomenon there. So George is right. Something spooked the Fed. I, I think pushing back against the conventional wisdom of your average stock jock, I would say that that Jay Powell wants to be perceived as being as apolitical as humanly possible. Kind of on the opposite end of the spectrum of his prior three uh, predecessors, uh, Fed Fed Chair Yellen, Bernanke, Greenspan. I think he mm-hmm. wanted to get ahead of the Iowa caucuses which are January the 15th. And so get that pivot language and signal out of the way and get because right. That doesn't meet until January the 31st. And they don't, I don't think Powell wants to be perceived as reacting to anything politically and trying to benefit one presumptive candidate over the other. But by the same token, they added post meeting, they added quantitative tightening to the minutes that wasn't it. wasn't in this. It wasn't even alluded to in this statement. Powell didn't even hint about quantitative tightening at the podium, and yet there it was in the minutes, reiterated by Dallas Fed President Lori Logan, former head of the New York Markets Desk, that quantitative tightening, tapering the pace of Treasury quantitative tightening, is on the table. So, to George's words, spooked. Something has got them worried, and I suspect that it is the immediacy of the corporate bond refinancing while arriving March, April of this year, and how that's going to play into potentially regional banking crisis 2.0. And so signaling that liquidity is not going to be as problematic, you could elegantly, theoretically do that and play catch up on your mortgage-backed security side, where there's a deficit of quantitative tightening. But as George and I were discussing prior to this, you know, money market funds aren't Dowling in the mortgage-backed securities market. So you could theoretically temper, taper your treasury quantitative tightening and increase the pace of from 15 to 20 up to 35 billion a month and play catch up on your mortgage-backed securities side. So net-net maintain a pace of balance sheet shrinkage, which is paramount to john williams to christopher waller to jerome powell to lori logan but yet lay some of the pressure on the liquidity side with the reverse repo facility almost being completely depleted theoretically here in the next few months
0: today's show is brought to you by public on public.com you can earn a 5.4 percent yield with u.s treasury bills the highest rate since 2000 it's one of the safest way to put your cash to work and it's one of the easiest too There are no minimum hold periods, no settlement delays, no nonsense. Just a low-risk place to park your cash and earn the highest yields the U.S. Treasury has offered in over 20 years. Plus, you can earn access on your cash at any time. In other words, you get the backing of the U.S. government and the flexibility of a traditional bank account. As of November 20th, 2023, you can earn 5.4% annualized yield with six-month T-bills if held to maturity. Go to public.com forward guidance to get started. That's public.com forward guidance. This podcast is sponsored by Public. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward guidance. Thanks, and let's get back to the episode. Yeah, Danielle, I, I want to give you a, a ton of credit for being extremely early to be be calling that the Federal Reserve would probably continue quantitative tightening as it cut rates. That seems to be, you know, unofficially official, like very very likely to to happen. So seems like Danielle, you and George agree that something spooked the Fed. What about the possibility though that the Federal Reserve is not that so worried about the economy? It's just that inflation fell from eight percent to three percent, and so what was a you know a moderately restrictive level of interest rates is now very, very restrictive, and uh, you know, basically, as inflation falls, the real rate goes up, as not nominal rates stay positive. So I'm I'm curious about uh, what you see in the labor market specifically, as well as other economic data uh, that that informs your view that you know that 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 is what is spooking spooking the Fed. So how about we go into uh, the the labor market and and so specifically the non farm payrolls report and the la- uh, labor market data that came out last uh, last Friday? Again, we're speaking in, in early. January. Superficially, things look, I would say, uh, quite good. You know, in a recession, the economy loses jobs so that the monthly change is a negative number. And the nonfarm payrolls number is, you know, adding 216,000 jobs uh, in the month of December. That sounds super superficially uh, uh, quite good. What is missing there? And what did you think? What spooks you? And what's what do you think spooked the Fed?
1: So, so my mentor at the Fed, Harvey Rosenblum, who was the 40-year veteran, you know, kind of his his benchmark, his threshold was always three months of positive or negative revisions to nonfarm payrolls. Three months of positive revisions tells you that you're coming out of contraction and heading into expansion, and the Bureau of Labor Statistics is playing catch up. Trying to catch that pent-up demand that's coming through in the second print, third print of non-farm payrolls. The same applies to the other side. When you get three consecutive months of downward revisions, Dr. Rosenblum taught me you were at an inflection point with the economy turning down. So the pandemic aside, the year 2020 aside, you have to go back to 2008 to see a year of consecutive negative revisions to non-farm payrolls. When you look at the Bureau of Labor Statistics data for the month of July, it appears that you had a a 40,000 positive revision, but when you net out the fact that 99,000 of those were government jobs specifically, you end up with a negative 49,000 revision to private sector job creation in the month of July, it comes out as being upwards of negative 40 some odd thousand per month, and that was... 17,000 less in the way of downward revisions vis-a-vis your average month in the month in the year of 2008 which was of course a brutal year for the us economy punctuated by the 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 collapse of lehman brothers you would never know that the us job market is as weak as as revisions are telling us, it is by the looks of what you cite, Jack, the, the headline non-farm payroll creation, 2216000 everything's just fine until you look under the hood and you realize, oh my gosh, we're at the weakest we've been since 2008. Given that my mentor at the Federal Reserve taught me this, I would suspect that there are others on the inside at the Fed who are pointing to this underlying weakness And that that is part of what is kind of got Powell and his closest lieutenants nervous.
0: Right. So we could uh, put that chart up of those non-farm payrolls revision comparing 2023 to 2008. And okay, you know, in May, early in May, the um, April data comes out. But then later on in the year, they say, oh, actually, we revising this data. Our first estimate was was incorrect Uh, in 2021 and 2022. A lot of the non-farm payrolls were not they actually they added more jobs than they eventually said. They were positive revisions. Twenty twenty three had unanimously, well, except for, for that one month. But again, you if you net out government jobs, unanimously mm-hmm. negative revisions to the non farm payrolls. So so you, you averaged you you wrote that the average from January to November for the monthly revisions was negative forty eight thousand. So say fifty thousand. So the you know with that average, the December number add of two hundred and sixteen thousand uh, jobs might instead be uh, uh, 166,000 jobs. So Danielle, two questions. One, what does that itself indicate? Like take us through, you know, kind of the plumbing of the, what, who were the the workers who the the BLS, Bureau of Statistics, thought got a job, but they actually didn't? Or were there firings that they didn't see, but that now they, they did? Take us through that plumbing. And also, how does it go from 166 to to zero? Because you know, again, for, for there to be a re- in most recessions, that you know NFP number really you know has to go negative, or in, as it did in 2008, 2009, very negative.
1: So you know, one of the other inflection points that we saw in the month of December was that the Bureau of Labor Statistics has finally flagged the birth death adjustment for just the month of December as being a negative number. So the bankruptcy cycle that's been with us now for in we're in our 13th month. Of a bankruptcy cycle. DailyJobCuts.com tracks closings of businesses. Their data set uh, goes back to 2009. They've never seen as consistently as they saw in 2023 the number of businesses closing. That speaks to Georgia's small and medium enterprises side of the equation, vis a vis uh, Bloomberg's BCY function that captures bankruptcies uh, with. Companies with liabilities of 50 million or more, which was the highest since 2009, 2010. So I, it looks like the Bureau of Labor Statistics birth death model is starting to catch up with the reality of the bankruptcy cycle that anybody who follows the credit markets knows has been in place since November, December, January, uh, uh, November, December 2022, and just continued to build in momentum. That's what we're starting to see. But prior to that, your 12 months, you had one3 million in in job gains, thanks to theoretical, modeled-in, imputed birth-death adjustments to the positive. And again, we're going to get benchmark revisions, we're going to get annual revisions where that, where that incorrectness in the birth-death model that is never captured at inflection points since the 2001 data series inception, the BLS will eventually catch up with the bankruptcies and And revise those jobs away so in 18 months' time we'll go, wow, 2021, 2020 were a lot stronger than we thought they were 2022, 2023, a lot weaker.
0: Hey, everyone, we're about to get back in the action. But before we do, let me give you a lowdown on what's been brewing at Blockworks. Come March next year in the heart of London, we're bringing together hundreds of the world's heavyweight asset managers. I'm talking about the big hitters, fund managers, allocators, payment providers, and the major high frequency traders. They'll all be converging at Digital Asset Summit London, the mother of all digitally focused conferences in the institutional space. If you're curious about what the big money is up to in the digital asset scene, this is the event for you. We're diving deep into the intersection of macroeconomics and crypto, dissecting where we're at at the market cycle, and we'll be getting into the nitty-gritty of real-world assets. So think stablecoins and on-chain treasuries. It's all in mix. I'm going to be there, and so are the Forward Guide superstars. Michael Howell is going to be there. There's a rumor that Joseph Wang is going to be there. I don't know who started that rumor, but people are saying that. We're also getting into the minds of allocators, so you get a front row seat to what the big crypto money managers are cooking up these days. And because you're a dedicated Forward Guidance listener, here's an exclusive treat. Use code FG10 to get 10% off. Just hit that link at the end of this episode, so gear up, because I'm looking forward to seeing you in sunny London town come March. Thanks, let's get back to the interview. The birth death ratio, you know, I like to be prepared for an so I, I looked into it and uh it, it's you know over my head it it, it really requires a, a lot of study but could you just briefly describe for our audience how what the birth uh, death adjustment is and it's it's not you know people being born and dying it is businesses being born and dying just for the it,
1: it is businesses being born and dying and and the reason that the BLS has consistently this is the third cycle that it's missed the inflection point using the, the birth death model is that there's momentum built into this model that suggests that recent years creation of businesses carries through when in fact they that that momentum has stopped and flipped to the other side and that is something that is only captured in longer term revisions to the benchmark numbers that we don't see for a long time but but at least the bls is consistent in not being able to capture the negative inflection as businesses are not being formed and and again they're using revised methodologies that require that if George has got somebody blowing his snow and gets Venmo'd more than a few hundred dollars a year, you have to have an employee identification number. So that's actually compounding the effect of business births that that, that babysitters and lawnmowers now had to create businesses, which plumps up the census's data on business births simply for tax reporting purposes as opposed to prior cycles when a business being formed was really an actual business, not somebody babysitting on the weekends who's 15 years old and getting over a certain threshold of hundreds of dollars of of income by watching the neighbor's kids.
2: I feel like the point that Dale made about the surveys, too, not being fully you know, replied back. I mean, if you have all these companies and they don't reply back that they've actually closed the doors. Like how are you going to know if they actually closed the doors? So there's, I think there's also a data quality problem here as well, which is we just don't know how viable the birth death model is here, you know, and then kind of, kind of further on a, kind of going backwards, the, the household survey does capture a lot of those kind of gig economy type workers. Right. And the household data last week was, was horrendous. I mean, and then and if you look at the unemployment rate staying unchanged, but yet, the labor force pool didn't change. it just doesn't match up. I mean, if we had the same sort of amount of people in the labor force and they lost, you know, we lost six, close to seven hundred thousand jobs on the on the household side, the unemployment rate would have been close to four percent. Mm-hmm. So, like, something's wrong with the numbers right now. And and the household survey is much more volatile, so we always have to take that with a grain of salt. But it's been going in both directions, and and that that usually is the, the better measure at inflection points, which I, which I think we are here. Uh, for the economy, and the household's not painting a really good story, and that's capturing those gig workers. And so if you get a phone call, do you have a job or multiple jobs? And if you don't, because your gig economy uh, is kind of letting you down or services are being cut back, then I think that's where you see it. So I'm I, I thinking of that, plus, you know, look, look I just want to just say one point, and, and maybe you can bring it up later. This whole what happened with the ISM services last Friday was also super critical. Oh my gosh. Especially the the employment index component of it. That is pre-recessionary, if not recessionary type levels already. So that number has to start to come up back quickly. We we champion the service sector at 70% of the economy. But if that's truly the intentions of private enterprises, they're not going to be if corporate America and small businesses are cutting back on employment as much as that index suggests. Then layoffs are going to happen by the summer, so like that's really where we're at. And but we have like this, we have this issue, which is that we're trained to. And trust me, I've been working for over twenty plus years on the trading floor. Danielle got great training at the Fed. I've got great training here on the on 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 the street. And and I've seen many quant models built around NFP, and they largely take the headline number, and that's what they react to first. And it's the second or third day you really start to understand what the economic data is telling you and last Friday's numbers both on the jobs data as well as this ISM release was not good at all and i think that's that that could be what the fed is already sensing right i mean that's why they're kind of pivoting us towards that they have to ease much quicker than initially thought
1: so jack if if i could jump in here for a second you know the wisdom imparted in what george just communicated that is why he was one of literally a handful a handful of analysts who fed into my FOMC briefings the whole nine years that I was at the Fed. George was my steady, steady, steady. He was not your typical sell side. I'm just going to go based off the headline and, and 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 impute the future based on that. He was always much more thoughtful than his years, wiser than his years. And that's why he was one of the, the very, very, I mean, Howard Silverblatt, Arthur Cashin, George Goncalves, Peter Bookmark. Literally, one hand, I can count the people who were my chief advisors on the street and what fed into all the FOMC briefings that I prepared all of those years, my hat's off to them. But I would add one other little, I'd add one little other facet, and that's that the household survey captures people. If you ask somebody who's been, who's living on severance, if they have a job, they're going to say no. If you ask a company, non-farm payroll, If they have an employee who's still on the books because they're paying them severance, Mm -hmm. they're going to say, yes, I do. And that's why I bring up the fact that we've put WARN notices into our modeling at QI Research, because there are so many millions of Americans collecting severance right now who are being reported as employees in one payroll survey, but not as employees in the other. And that's again why your household picks up inflection turning points. These people know they're not getting rehired. They know that they're collecting ninety days of severance.
0: That's a that's a really good point. I I, I didn't think of that. At, at what point, George, do you think to, to use you know the the the, the phrase the, the government you know, faucet will, will stop? Uh, because I think you saw a lot of this deterioration in twenty twenty three, and maybe even going back into well, definitely going back into to twenty twenty two, and yet the economy remained. Robust, and you know, so many many manufacturing and industrial sectors were, you know, arguably in recession. Railroads, trucking, chemicals, and if this, you know, were 1923 instead of 2023, the overall economy definitely would have gone into recession because that was such a big percentage of the economy. But you know, the U.S. economy is 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 a service oriented sector, so it was industry specific. It didn't go, it didn't bleed into the overall macro. So, would would you say, George, that? Uh, if the government money printer continues to uh, print as as vigorously as it has uh, over the past few years, that the U.S. economy will avoid recession. Number one, and can you explain your case about why you think the the fiscal support will stop this year? We look at uh, page
2: seventeen in the deck, and you know this is a chart that comes from the San Francisco Fed, and, and Danielle, I'm sure, very intimate with this chart as well. Look at the kind of accumulated excess savings and how it's been drawn down. And most likely it's now, you know, heading towards, you know, Q1, Q2 is probably going to be completely exhausted. So we, we, that was one of the reasons why you know, the kind of excess savings are still in the system. And, and although the, you know, the fiscal support measures post pandemic have been coming offline all throughout the last couple of years, the student loan one really only took place last year and the last of the, the federal home federal housing kind of support, That also stopped last year, too, at the end of the the year. So now we're really getting into much more pure play health of the consumer. And now it's really where we're going to see if the consumer is as as resilient, as strong as it is. And then the other chart, if you don't mind uh, pulling up, in addition to the savings one, is the one on page 20. And this is looking at, to answer your point about fiscal deficits. I mean, last year, the deficit was 1.7, but if you kind of look at the actual Running rate into September 30, it was close to 2 trillion. So we were spending 2 trillion in a so called sustainable economic environment. Pre COVID is 500 billion, which was still a lot in terms of deficits. We're talking about 4X that amount in order to generate 2.8% real growth. I mean, we better get growth if we're spending that much money. Um, So, I mean, the fiscal support was there. But look at just this chart on page 20. This is looking at a five year growth rate of where, you know, kind of excess lending or support for the economy can come from. And the purple line, if you can see it, mm-hmm. is the total debt outstanding from the US government standpoint. So massive, eager you know, kind of growth rates, cumulative growth rates in post-financial crisis, which is the purple line spiking higher. But after COVID, we've kind of maintained roughly the 10% run rate of additional government spending on the fiscal side. And it, and it, and it, and it dwarfs The private sector. So this is something that Danielle also alluded to before. Is not just that the the, the government will produce like not like lower productive type jobs, and we could debate all that and its lower paying jobs relative to the private sector. There's also a kind of a crowding out that's happening from all this government debt. So my view has always been along that we just can't afford these high levels of rates because we have just way too much debt. And on top of that, even if rates had lowered, Treasuries rally, which I think they are in the process of doing they can still compete with the oxygen in the room of credit for other parts of the economy. And that's something that's been happening really since 2008. So we haven't been a pure private-based economy. We've had a lot of help from the government for the last 15, 20 years.
1: I'm just going to throw it out there that, you know, all of my contacts on the Hill tell me that the lobbying to bring the employee retention credit back at the end of March or potentially the middle of March is extremely heavy in this election year. So the, the the pressure on the IRS is 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 insane to 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 process hundreds of thousands of employee retention credit claims that are sitting there that have not been processed uh, by the IRS, which could you you're talking about pumping potentially two hundred billion dollars of of cash into household bank accounts, but of course the GOP-led House of Representatives is not. It's not eager to benefit the Biden administration as we head towards Election Day. Uh, I don't want to get too knee-deep in politics here, but again, these are my contacts on the Hill. This is what they're telling me. You know, Kevin O'Leary continues to vigorously lobby up there to bring the ERC back. Why wouldn't he? 20, you know, 25 30% contingency fees while the IRS is trying to go against that by saying you will not be criminally prosecuted if you decide to give your ERC claim back and we'll even give you a discount of 20%. So you don't have to pay back what you've already paid in contingency fees to the people who are peddling this. So it's, it's fascinating to see what's going on behind closed doors in Congress at the IRS to try and revive a source of direct stimulus to households uh, in this election year
0: and mm. I, I, Danielle, I very much try and avoid uh, politics on on this show you know especially when it comes to the Federal Reserve, but I feel like it's unavoidable at this point because we are talking about fiscal support. so if you could, could you share more analysis on on why you think that the the fiscal support will will stop because you know one could say that an election year is actually motivating the government to spend more money in order to, to buy favor. And that one party wouldn't want to shut things down because then they could be you know blamed for turning the tap off.
1: Right. I mean, so you don't, um, you're not penalized for for defaulting on your student loan payments, which should have started back up last October, but you're not reported to a credit re- reporting agency until um, Halloween of this year. What What's that five days before election day and money matters, Jack. So I'm not, I'm not talking politics here. But the employer Retention Credit paid out $29.8 billion in the month of July 2023 alone before it was pushed on pause on September the 14th. $200 billion is, is quite a bit of money pumped into household bank accounts directly. The Biden administration has already managed to excuse $175 billion of student loans forgive them completely when the Supreme Court ruled that $400 billion was too big, that it was unconstitutional. The power of the purse with such large numbers should reside with Congress. But yet he's managed to onesie twosie, you know, a couple, ten, tens of thousands of borrowers at a time chip away at $175 billion student loans. So the, the battle lines have clearly been drawn. And I will reiterate that I think that Jay Powell wants to not have A place in this battle. I I think that to George's last, last chart, it's ridiculous that you need four times the same amount of spending and to not be penalized for it. And one of the few ways that even Ben Bernanke was very vociferous in saying, well, gee, the Fed has to continue with monetary policy support because we're not getting enough on the fiscal side. You can flip that argument on its head if you're the Fed, and say, we want to be more reticent in dropping interest rates back to the zero bound, because the U.S. Congress and the White House, you're spending like, you know, you're spending like drunken sailors, even though theoretically we have sustainable escape velocity in the U.S. economy. So maybe that's one of the few things that the Federal Reserve can do to attempt to curtail deficit spending when it's so obviously being thrown out there to buy votes in an election year. So very contentious political backdrop that is very economic in how it manifests. Are there any
0: like particular programs uh, that do you think could be cut? Or in, way, you know, in when you say that the fiscal deficit will will uh, go down because the government will spend less money, uh, what uh, sort in, in what way will that happen? And if we could just put George's great chart here up 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 again, that purple line of the compounded annual growth rate of the fiscal deficit, that that purple line. You know, I think so, Daniel, you said at the beginning that you think this basically this will be the year that the purple line goes down or at least, the, you know, for one year of of, of that. Uh, so how do you see that purple line going down?
1: Well, I mean, if you are General Motors or Ford, you know, and I'm just bringing up publicly available information mm-hmm. you know, in, in the midst of the UAW strike. They pulled the plug on some very large electric vehicle investments that were being subsidized and supported by federal fiscal spending. You actually have to have uptake of what's being offered in the private sector. You have to have that borrowing of of cheaper federal funds occur in order for it to filter through to the economy. So infrastructure spending right now is very much alive and well. And we're seeing that in Dodge construction data that's showing that private private non-residential is down tremendously year over year ditto for residential spending but when you get to non-building projects you're seeing that that's up appreciably year over year that is your infrastructure spending alive and well in the economy but again the projects have to be undertaken in order for that fiscal spending to be absorbed and 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 benefit the growth of the us economy such that you're seeing a gdp report come out and say you know government spending supported x amount of economic output you have to have a two-way supply and demand for those funds in order to propel the economy forward even though they're unionized jobs and it's not as efficient as the private sector would be but again to george's point there's a crowding out effect with this type of pork barrel spending so it, again jack i you know th- this is going to be one of these years where you wish you could just turn the lights out and you know wake me up on on november the 7th when the fed has a very strange unusual thursday 2 p.m. announcement, because they're purposely moving that FOMC meeting to be a Wednesday, Thursday meeting to avoid meeting on election day.
0: Wait, so the the the, at the press conference will be on a Thursday instead of Wednesday?
1: Yes, yeah, so mark your calendar. So FOMC debrief dinner is going to be on Thursday in November, not a Wednesday.
0: Wow, that that I mean, it's always on a Wednesday. That is that is a very interesting. So um, that, that's a great point that Nothing uh, can happen in in Congress in terms of reducing the deficit. But if the private sector uh, falters and does not invest and take advantage of these tax credits, then the federal deficit uh, itself will, will will go down. Uh, George, I, I want to uh, go back to the plumbing and and rate cuts. You got this. You know, you and your team at MUFG made this great chart of Federal Reserve cuts after the last hike. And there's you know, the last, previous rate hike cycles, like seventy four. 1980, 1981, 84, 80, 89, what so so the leftmost part on the on this access is right after the last hike, and then it goes into the last cut. So uh, what type of rate cutting cycle do you think this will be? Will it be a a, a drip 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 of, of 25s? And uh, how long do you think it will last? In other words, you earlier in this conversation, you said that um, you think it will go to basically every every a, a, a 25 basis point, every meeting starting in March. So for the month of, by December, that would be uh, 3, 3.75% for the upper Fed funds range. Where do you think, do you think that's that is the end of, of the uh, cycle or, or how do you goes on? So how do you see this uh, rate cutting cycle playing out?
2: Yeah, no, so look, Jack, as a as chart kind of, kind of speaks for itself, the 70s and 80s, we had much higher rates. So there was a lot more uh, amplitude to go in both directions. So the Fed was able to cut rates a thousand basis points in, in those two instances, uh, but you know, in, in the more modern day uh, era, it's anywhere between. Well, in the modern day era, the Fed has lived in the in the last two times, they've gone right back close to zero. And so, as I kind of alluded to here on this on this this caption of here, you know, if they get down to three seventy five by the end of the year on the top end of the band, that's not the end of it because they're really trying to search for what is neutral rate. But by the same token. They're not looking to, to, to aim for zero rate policy again either, nor to bring back QE, which is what everyone really ultimately wants in the markets, or at least they think they want it until they realize why it's coming in the first place. You don't want QE to come back again. You want the, the banking system to come back online. You want lending to be organic and not just come from you know, easy money and just you know defense balance sheet expansion. So like I think they're trying to figure out what neutral is. And I think that's the ultimate really kind of objective here. So- I don't think they stop in December. My point being is that for this year, it's 175. If it's based on macro conditions and a bumpy landing, maybe we do avoid recession. Maybe we don't. We don't know yet. Recessions are always hard to kind of call when you're in the midst of one. But nonetheless, if we can avoid it, it's because they start cutting soon. And then the question that really comes down to, they've never done this measured cutting cycle in reverse. They are much more measured when they're raising rates. But when they start cutting, it's because the facts have changed. So if they cut, they get, we can easily go from 25 to 50s and 75 bit cuts, and that would be because the economy is really decelerating or there's more of a, a financial accident in the making. So the baseline is 175, but the goal is to try to get down to 253% and hope that nothing really breaks in between.
1: I, I completely agree with George. I was like giving him the double hands up. You don't want QE to return. The market participant, private equity, Market players want quantitative easing and zero interest rate environments to return because they they print money at the zero bound when they're levering up God knows what. But we're watching the aftermath of that, right, in the bankruptcy cycle. The bankruptcy cycle is a manifestation of what happens when you borrow at the zero bound and over lever companies.
0: And, and uh, Danielle, do you think that the Federal Reserve's rate cuts could reignite economic activity? So, for example, you know, mortgage refinancings and, and overall mortgage volumes Collapsed as rates rose in 2022 and 2023. Do you think you know that as they fall, that market will uh, get get lit up again? And you know there will be more IPOs, there will be more uh, bond issues because everything looks better when rates are a little bit lower than they were uh, six to twelve months ago.
1: You could potentially reignite economic activity if you can abandon measured right. Alan Greenspan, seventeen interest rate hikes, twenty five basis points apiece. That kind of trickle, 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 trickle is not going to do anything for a company looking at doubling their borrowing costs if the Fed funds rate gets down to 4%. It's an irrelevant move. Same situation. if you've got a lot of equity built up in your home and you want to monetize that and you see mortgage rates begin to decline and you can afford a higher payment or you can afford whatever the financial cost is of refinancing to monetize that equity, so be it, fine, good. But unless we're at the zero bound, it's going to be difficult to reignite economic activity when you're seeing, you know, rents fall as quickly. And my goodness, it was just a few months ago that the New York Fed was reporting that the average US household anticipated rent inflation to be nine and a half percent. In in the space of a few months, it's fallen to seven and a half percent. That's a very quick deceleration of income expectations. And we're seeing that play out in supply really flooding onto the market.
0: And George, how are how are you sort of thinking about the odds that the Federal Reserve can achieve a soft landing in terms of in, inflation of you know has fully returned, and it can bring rates down and sort of you know wrap a nice bow on this economic cycle? Of course, the economic cycle never ends; it, it always continues. But you know, I guess, how are you sort of thinking about the odds of a recession versus a, a soft landing?
2: So I think we're probably one of the few last holdouts that are. With a 55 percent chance of a, of a recession, and we could already be going through. We just don't know. Uh, it could be a very mild recession, like the 1990s or 2001 type recession. And again, if they start easing, then we'll they'll catch it. And probably, we'll never find out if we're truly in a recession or not until the, the revisions kick in. Which, at some point, it's all about the labor market. So, if we see the revisions kick in, as kind of Danielle was mentioning, but I think, like you know, it, it's, this is a cash flow problem. This is a credit spread problem. And this is like strong versus weaker players. Who can actually last through this tough period before the Fed actually gets rates lower? Because it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a process. Again, unless they start slashing rates aggressively, even my 175 bid cuts is not enough to reignite the economy. That just creates like, you know, slows down, It creates some, you know, just you know, some foaming of the runway to allow the economy to bump along and then maybe find its footing and then re- recover again. But during that process, you still have delinquencies that pick up. And so what you could have is a situation where treasury rates go to 3% because they know it's the Fed's next move, but yet yields on corporates don't move or actually start heading higher. So like uh, you could have a credit spread widening from credit markets not be able to keep up with treasuries. And that's the last leg of the, of the puzzle, and that's where strong corporates that have cash flow, the strong CREs, the, the strong multifamilies, those that actually have cash flow – they can weather this move, and the Fed only cuts 200 pips or so, but more likely, they're going to have to go deeper than that before we get a sustainable economic recovery. So I'm in the bumpy landing, mild recession, camp. And if we avoid that, it's because the Fed has gotten even more aggressive than that 175 cuts. And, but even that, it's, it's, it's a close call. So I, I'm still sticking
0: with the, it's going to be a bumpy landing. Sticking with the bumpy landing. Danielle, how about you?
1: I can't, um, Jack, I've lost count of the number of parallels between where we are today and where we were in 2000. And what that tells me is that the, that the statisticians at the federal agencies have yet to catch up with the reality of where we are today. You cannot draw this many parallels. You cannot say, hey, the employment index in the services ISM fell from 50.7 to 43.3 and have not had something happened to, to fill that blank in. And And the National Association of Credit Managers telling you, Hey, we've got recessionary reads on accounts out for, 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 for collection, on how quickly bankruptcies are, are forming, on how difficult it is for us to collect from, from accounts. Also cratering, but below the 45 line. And that, that's, I think, something that people should always bear in mind is that diffusion indices that we follow month in and month out, you know, the difference between 49 and 51, who cares? But once you're starting to talk about numbers south of 45, those are recessionary prints, historically speaking. And everybody's assumption who's not in Georgia's camp is ch- is also saying recessionary readings don't count this time. It's different this time. Because that's your underlying assumption in order for you to dismiss what the data are telling you and the parallels that are being drawn between now and the great financial crisis.
0: But how would you compare, Danielle, the Level of credit performance between now and the the Great Financial Crisis, I, I think it was extremely high, leading it even in you know two and seven with subprime mortgages, a huge huge market now. Uh, now I think you know credit card delinquencies I think are their their highest level since 2012. But if you you know, extend the chart back, they're actually lower than any time from 1994 to 2012. So. You know, it's it's the, the delinquencies were ridiculously, exceptionally low, and so delinquencies have gone up 200, percent which is very a lot. But you know, if if interest rates are at one percent and they go to three percent, they've tripled. That doesn't mean that three percent is is super high. So how, how would you say about uh, this this the whole panoply of of credit, auto loans, which I know you, you do a lot of of, of work on, uh, mortgages, which you know, private credit risk mortgages, I think are you know delinquencies are are remain exceptionally low. Mm-hmm. Um, credit cards, the whole, uh, and then you know, basically everything that's on a bank balance sheet that has credit risk.
1: So I think we, the, the line that's missing from your theoretical chart is the unemployment rate mm-hmm. and how very low it is for us to be even talking about multi-year highs and delinquencies. If you really haven't seen momentum kick in in terms of the layoff cycle, that's really where we are right now. And there's also this cute little thing called buy now, pay later, which is a multi-trillion dollar phenomenon that is not captured in any credit metric when it comes to measuring the health of the household balance sheet. And it's specifically because it's not captured by credit rating agencies that it's been pursued by your 20 to 29 and 30 to 39-year-old age cohorts so that they can extend out their their, their buying. Factor in how many adults are living with their parents and therefore don't have that huge line item of rent or a mortgage To shoulder. So I think when you're talking about delinquency rates going back a long time, you have to factor in headship creation. How many households are being created? How many adult males are living with their parents? How many people are having their parents cover their iPhone bill or their rent? How many people are using buy now, pay later? How many people are not paying? 40% of student loan holders are not paying their student loans. You have to incorporate all this in and say the consumer should be a lot stronger. Mm-hmm. If they're not having to shoulder all of these expenses.
0: And if there is a credit event, how do you, what do you think are the likely candidates of what might be the, the, the credit events? We can go within the banking system or beyond into the CLO world, the private credit world, you know, non-bank financial institutions as well.
1: Talking about 2007 and going back in time, high yield bond spreads are where they were back in, I think, June of 07, okay. you know, close to their record tight levels. And that is the one area that we really haven't seen any disruption. But again, we've got the WeWork effect in full effect. Every day, I mean, we're now numb and immune to, you know, some building crossed hands at 10 cents on the dollar from what was owed because the equity is simply not there to fill that gap in. But what we don't really see yet and what we'll see in March and April is the beginning of the corporate bond refinancing cycle. When... Companies have no choice, either they're, it, it, once you cross the threshold from it being a a, a 12 plus month liability to a equal equal or less than 12 months, it's a current liability. So you have to refinance beginning in March and April. We've never seen that in 40 years. The, the only person I didn't mention between Arthur Cash and Peter bookvar George Goncalves, How, Howard Silverblatt is Oleg Malentiv. And Oleg is is still the head of of high-yield credit at Bank of America, fabulous thinker, has been doing this forever, older than his years, wiser than his years, just like George. And he will tell you that once you have to reclassify as a current liability, you must refinance. But going back for 40 years of data, Federal Reserve policy has been able to move quickly enough to avoid the maturity wall. That's not the case as far as we see it today. Even if it, even if we get the first rate cut in March, you still have companies forced to refinance beginning in March and April of 2024. We haven't seen that for multiple cycles. And that, I think, is going to manifest in the abrupt move that we saw beginning last week in high-yield CDX levels. And it was a very abrupt move indeed.
0: George, how are you thinking about that? Both credit spreads for for high yield bonds, but in, in particular the, the refinancing wall that that Danielle just talked about.
2: Yeah, no, I think it's going to disproportionately matter more for the high yield sector than the IG sector. Uh, but let's you know, you know, this is something that I think we all kind of can agree with. Starting points matter, and the end of 2023 was a pretty big bull run in risk assets, and that dragged up credit with it. and you know, Credit spreads tightened. Some of the best performance in one month windows in November and December on record. It's hard to beat that. So now with the IG cash index at 100, when they were coming into the year, it is very limited upside on just IG other than you're clipping a coupon so At that point, you're probably better off buying treasuries, but still IG is probably okay. But it's, it's really gonna be the high yield sector that they haven't really had to face this. And again, we're super tight spreads. So you can have a situation where the maturity wall kicks in, the Fed is slowly cutting rates at 25 a pop, that's not gonna be enough because then spreads can be widening by 25 every week, right? Like we've seen that even last week. So if spreads were to get, I mean, we have a range of around 340 to, to 500 on high yield is our base case. We entered the year in the low 300s. I think we'll have another moment where we're gonna get up north of 400. And then that's when the, the, the equity market will take notice and start to realize, wait, there's a funding issue here. It's not just like rate cuts are gonna save everything. And even if the pen's cutting, they're going to have to then speed up the cuts at that point. And it gets into that kind of contentious period before the election. So I think it's hard to kind of thread this needle and get it all right. And that's why I have the boogie landing, which then feeds back into these more levered players having a hard time and also being crowded out by still attractive treasury rates and mortgage rates for mortgage bonds. I mean, mortgages are, are not going to prepay as much as they, they did in the past, and they're offering a pretty high coupon so we were, we're much more defensive this year. Short-term IG, mortgages, and treasuries are the better bet uh, for your fixed-income portfolios. I think it's going to be hard for high yield to repeat within the last two months.
0: And how are you feeling about the long end of the treasury curve? So let's say that the 10-year treasury yield where you're you not taking credit risk, you're taking duration risk. What's your outlook on that?
2: Here's the, here's the struggle, right? So we basically ended the 10-year at the end of the year within like the same level where it was in 2022. So we had a lot of volatility in between the year, and we got rates close to 5% for a nanosecond on the 10-year. But if you look at a two-year rolling window, we have not had the 10-year stay above 5% since 2007, 2006. So we have not had rates that high. So I I think rates have probably peaked. I know some are calling for rates to go even higher than 5%. If rates go higher than 4.5%, 5%, 5%, then that's going to take down the other markets with it. So I I just think it's going to be hard for 10-year rates to really sell off from here. But I do think we have one last kind of adjustment process. We've been going through it these last couple of weeks. The market is sometimes too smart for its own good and prices things in before they actually happen. So I think, can we get back to 425 in the 10-year? That's kind of my my next target to kind of go back in. And then from there, I think the 10-year goes back down to the low 3s. But the 2-year probably rallies much more so than the 10-year. I think the combination of, again, even larger fiscal deficits now larger debt loads than we had in 07 or in 2020, that each time we go back to the kind of the fiscal well, it's going to be hard for the 10-year to rally aggressively. Most of the moves are going to come from short-term treasuries.
0: So you're, you're mildly bullish on the 10-year the if it were to get to that level, but you're much more bullish on the T. more uh, bullish, more optimistic, much more on the front end of the yield curve, which of course has a, you know, a lot more to do with the Federal Reserve. Dan, what's your outlook on, on treasuries?
1: So I, I'm I'm right there with George that we have seen the peak in in rates and that there is a massive tug of war going on at, at the long end and that there are still plenty of people out there who are kind of parroting the sticky inflation narrative that I don't see in any of the data by the way but but I want to go back to what George was talking about before with if we do see that widening out in in high-yield spreads, mm-hmm. we'll see it flow through into the equity markets. So there's a lot of confusion, I think, in social media circles. It's not a an equity market correction of 20% that's going to propel the Fed to move, but rather if you see 40% correction or 33%, something something along those lines of correction in the equity markets, it's going to be catalyzed credit markets. So I think, I think a lot of people need to bear in mind what happened in late 2018 was the credit markets feeding through to the equity markets. And that's what prompted a more aggressive Fed. And when you see those types of events, that's when they react. But no, I definitely think that we've seen rates at the long end peak. That it goes part and parcel with everything that we're seeing on the macroeconomy side. And the comment that I made earlier about, you know, we're back in 2008 in terms of parallels to macroeconomic data points.
0: George, now let's return to uh, balance sheet policy. We talked earlier about how the, the Federal Reserve could continue quantitative tightening. How do you think the Fed's balance what's the Fed's balance sheet going to look like at the end of the year and why?
2: Because so I think the Fed balance sheet at this point, if they're not going to be embarking on QE anytime soon, it's about how they manage QT. And, and it has to be vis-a-vis the RRP program, the repo program, and the bank reserves in the system. And to some of the points that you know, that Danielle made earlier about the split between treasuries and mortgages. And so this is where it gets really wonky. And this is the plumbing stuff that we love. This chart is looking at the red line is the RRP. And as you can see, it's been declining since the debt ceiling was resolved. The black line is the reserves in the system, the banking system. And the gray line is the overall treasury holdings that the Fed has, which are somewhere around 4.7-ish. If, if the Fed really wants to keep QT in place longer and really Use it through the mortgage channel, which I think is is a program. I think Danielle spot on and early to that as well. That if it if it's if it's the mortgages that I get that come off the book because ultimately they want to get to a pure government backed, pure government treasury only portfolio, they have to keep the mortgage book shrinking. So as long as there isn't a massive credit event, especially not on the housing side, right? so we're not, we haven't really mentioned that at all. This is not really a housing problem issue. This is going to be more about corporate credit. And so if that's the case. They should be getting out of the mortgage book over time. So we do think that that's the right, right way of doing it. So the balance sheet at the end of 2024 could look like where something like a hybrid of what we saw in 2019, where they stop the treasury roll-offs and they start to reinvest back into auctions through the process called Fed add-ons. And also they could take some of the mortgage proceeds. This is again the concept that Danielle was referring to. Take some of that mortgage prepays and also buy Treasuries. And guess what? There's a lot of Treasuries to get funded over the course of the, the coming years. So I can easily see a situation where they pivot the QT towards reinvesting the Treasuries again and and not reinvesting the mortgages. And that is something that we think will happen over the course of this year. But it's going to be phased in unless we have a like a big sudden stop on credit unless there's a big accident. In the banking side or financial markets have a big decline, like 30 or 40%, they're not gonna stop QT right away and not gonna go to QE either. So I think it's just a, kind of this, this handoff between the RRP, bank reserves,
0: and then getting to a treasury only portfolio uh, down the road. Interesting. And how large does that look like, do you think? At what point did they stop in terms of the total holdings?
2: So last year they shrunk about 700 ish on the treasuries, 200 on the mortgages natural turnover of the mortgage market should pick up a little bit. Let's say rates do go down to 3.5 or less on the 10 year and mortgage spreads come in to 100, which is my tar- our target here. Um, that gives you a four and a half plus some uh, some secondary spread. So let's call it a five and a half to six percent mortgage rate for the everyday household. That's still not enough of a you're not in the money to refinance if you, you know, because you yeah, most people have 3% or 4% mortgages. It's really going to be the last year's production that probably gets refinanced. So those that bought homes last year that want to float down, and that will give a little bit of a mini refinancing, but not massive. Maybe you get $300 billion off of the Fed's portfolio for mortgages. Maybe that's even probably too high. Uh, and then the tr- then that money will get reallocated towards Treasuries over time, in probably in 2025. But again, all this stuff is very fluid. We We just went from the Fed that pivoted in December. They can easily turn off QT if they had mm-hmm. to. I think the, the more elegant solution is this idea of transitioning, taper down treasury slowly, and then move towards what I think Danielle's been saying for quite some time.
0: It's been so great to, to, to get both of you here, George and Danielle. People should check out QI Research, the Daily Feathers, or a must read, and QI Pro, which you know, I'm very lucky to, to read as well. And you know, if you're an institutional client, you've got to check out George's work for sure. Thank you both so much, and thank you everyone for watching.
1: Thank you for having us.
0: Thanks for watching. Make sure to show some love to today's sponsor, Public, by going to public.com/slash forward guidance. Right now, the Treasury bills are earning as high as five point four percent but the Federal Reserve has indicated that it may cut rates this year, and the market seems to think that the Fed will cut a lot in 2024. So in my personal opinion, that 5.4% on your cash that's available now, it might not be there in the future if the Federal Reserve does what it indicated it may do and what the market is pricing in. Again, that link is public.com forward guidance. Also, forward guidance is available not just on YouTube, but on Twitter and on all podcast apps, including Spotify, where a video version of the show is also available. Thanks again for watching. Until next time.